Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an exciting and innovative startup currently seeking funding for our fully automated combination videotape return and Huey Lewis and the News streaming service. I'm sure all of you have heard of American Psycho, either the book, written by Brett Easton Ellis and published in 1991, or the film adaptation, directed by Mary Harron and released in 2000. For this episode, I enlisted the help of Edward, an expert on the film, having watched it at least 30 times. I, for my part, have seen the film maybe four or five times, and recently read the book. For the few of you who don't know what American Psycho is about, it's a novel set sometime during the 1980s and told from the perspective of Patrick Bateman, a young investment banker in Manhattan who, in a cocaine and Xanax haze, dines in expensive restaurants, spends hours each day at the gym, obsesses over the finer points of men's fashion, waxes lyrical about Phil Collins, blinds the homeless, stabs children, and also rapes, tortures, and murders women. It's a pitch-black satire of consumerist nihilism and has some of the funniest dialogue I've come across in a novel. So, enjoy. Most of the motivation for doing American Psycho as an episode for this podcast, I think, is because of the movie. So, not... Like, reading American Psycho with... Among some people is popular, but most have seen the movie. It's a particularly guy movie. Of course, this is... Well, it's almost certainly self-selecting, but among men I know or meet, if you ask one of them if they like Huey Lewis in the news or if they have some videotapes <laughs> that they need to return, they, they will respond with more Patrick Bateman <laughs> quotes. <laughs> but I think the distinguishing characteristic between those who have only seen the film and those who have read the book is if you mentioned that you need to go and uh, watch an episode of The Paddy Winters Show. Yeah, The Paddy Winters Show. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> always watching. This is actually a question. I haven't looked this up. Do you know if The Paddy... I think The Paddy Winters Show probably was a real show, but I haven't actually looked it up. I'm not sure. I'll do some some book research right now. Some quick, scrupulous research. So the the first... So it's, it's all just American Psycho stuff. The first res- result, the Patty Winters show symbol in American Psycho. Then, why is Patrick Bateman so obsessed with the Patty Winters show? <laughs> so, okay, so it looks like the Patty Winters show doesn't exist. It's just in American Psycho, which would make sense considering some of the, the episodes or the, the episode themes that are on the Patty Winters show in American Psycho. Completely absurd stuff. They start out normally or somewhat normally enough, but get progressively stranger as the book goes on. I guess that is a, not totally a plot, but at least a dynamism within the book in that things do get stranger as the book goes on. Mm, mm. Yeah, I was watching the film, uh, not last night, but the night before, and in the film... It's more explicit that, you know, Patrick Bateman is undergoing at least some kind of psychological degeneration. Because there's so much more jammed into the book, and as I was just listening to the audiobook version of it, I was struggling to think, like, is this is this actually meant to be a plot arc that he's degenerating? Or is he just consistently psychotic throughout the entire book? Because I, I didn't get much of an impression of 
real degeneration. Um, maybe the murders get a little bit more graphic. I, I do vaguely recall the scene um, where he murders a kid in the park, also the zoo um, at the end of the book. That's not displayed in the movie. But it's pretty insane from the get-go. Um, so yeah, what do you think? I mean, do you think it was an explicit arc? Yeah, I think it gets crazier as the book goes on. He works in a few biographical details. It mentions offhand that maybe he lost his humanity at Harvard when he was studying there, but maybe he was crazy before then. He implies that he's always been unhinged. Mm. But at le- And given that the book is from his perspective, and certainly in the latter half of the book, he starts getting a lot crazier. There are parts where he seems to depersonalise and the narration begins to take place in the third person, describing Patrick Bateman like running around and shooting police officers in the head with a pistol and then <laughs> getting into a taxi and shooting the taxi driver and driving away in the taxi. <laughs> That's where he goes on this rampage and blows up a police car. That's where it, um, in the movie there's this scene where he shoots at a police car with a pistol and the car explodes and he looks really shocked. And as yep, you said, yep. it makes it much more explicit that he might just be losing his mind. Whereas in the book, it, it says that he shot the fuel tank and it explodes. Again, how Patrick Bateman would know that, I'm not sure. So there is still a lot of ambiguity in the book, but less than in... that. It's, it's less... The ambiguity as to whether he's crazy or not is less in your face than in the movie. Yeah, I think there is... Yeah, there's definitely a school of interpretation that views it all as uh, going on entirely inside his own head, and it's just the unfolding of an increasing psychosis. I, th- I believe, I, I haven't looked this up recently, but Brett Easton Ellis was actually asked this, and he said that it was just, it had never occurred to him that this was just occurring all inside Patrick Bateman's own head. So at least if we take Brett yeah. Easton Ellis's word for it, it wasn't an explicit sort of theme that this was meant to be sort of imaginary in any sense. I don't blame people for thinking that way, though, because I'd heard the theory and read the book, having heard the theory, and it does fit because also everyone, and this is really funny, everyone mistakes everybody else for everybody else. Yeah, like yeah, in the process yeah. of a single conversation, sometimes people will call Patrick Bateman two or three different names, and Bateman doesn't dispute it either. He just starts acting as if he's that other person. <laughs> Marcus Halberstam. Halberstam. <laughs> Paul Owen keeps calling him that, and Patrick Bateman just goes along with it. <laughs> and real beehive of activity, activity Halberstam. This place is hot. <laughs> <laughs> I want you yeah, to call me Paul so Allen. <laughs> Although yeah, it's Paul like Allen in the film, Paul Owen in the film. Paul the book. Owen, yeah. A bunch of people's names are slightly different. I think yeah, Van so Patton's Bryce name is, is also a bit Price. different. Yeah, Price I feel like Van Patton. It's Bryce in the film and then oh, Price in the book. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was... Well, I would have to assume that that would be intentional on behalf of, on the part of the director. Um, given given just, how masterfully American Psycho was rendered in cinema, it's one of the few times yeah. that the the book and the movie are doing slightly different things. It's hard to say which is 
better. The movie's certainly much more condensed and has a much more identifiable plot, but it's one of the few times when the movie's very much comparable to the book. And given that the director was so capable of of bringing American Psycho to the screen, I expect that those things were all intentional. I doubt there was there were any accidents like that happening. That she she just didn't know the names of the characters. No, no, no. Yeah, I I I mean, look, I haven't read the book or visually scrutinized it in the last ten years. Uh, my my opinion has always been that the film was better. But what I what I did find interesting listening to at least half of the audiobook in the last few days and rewatching the film a couple of days ago was how much of the pretty much all of the actual dialogue or monologues in the film is just directly lifted word to word from yeah, the book yeah. which is a testament to how good the actual dialogue in the book is that it's so funny that the, the film is like an edited highlights reel of the book yeah, I think that's a pretty fair description of the film because sometimes they'll put the the dialogue from the book into a different context in the film, but they yeah. they yeah they won't alter it at all. Mm. I think the dialogue is the best part of this book. The prose in general is is really good, but the dialogue is just fantastic. It's so <laughs> funny and consistently so funny. <laughs> I the think extent I was, uh, to which it carries the book is that the book doesn't have much plot it's well, let's see how yeah almost 400 pages my edition is mm. not much like it's it's quite repetitive in what happens it tends to be Patrick Bateman either going to meals with people or murdering people <laughs> but just the fact that the dialogue is so good it carries what would otherwise be something that's very boring. <laughs> and I think just the the chapter titles are just always so funny because they're so spare. <laughs> just like Harry's. Girls. Or just the net girls, Harry's, Genesis. <laughs> Killing <Jim>. dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Killing dog. He also, he repeats chapter titles as well. There are a bunch of yeah, chapters exactly. just called girls where he just kills women. Yeah. <laughs> Just the, the the offhand way that he describes committing huge mur- like murders or violations of women. Just well, I can't remember the names of the people he's describing it. I know I messaged it to you the other night. It's like just describing the people sitting around a table, and he's talking about person X, and then uh, lady Y, who I raped with a spray can in Aspen last winter, and sitting next to her is someone else. <laughs> it's just sort of in passing. Yeah. He just describes the most violent things. As I said previously, I think that's where some of the dynamism in the book the book comes from not so much from the plot but from the fact that in the first half of the book patrick bateman will hint or not even hint he just says it outright but there'll just be little mentions of these atrocities he's been committing but otherwise (laughs) he's an extremely obnoxious yuppie in manhattan but as the book goes on the the descriptions of what he does get much more drawn out like instead of just an offhand sentence about raping someone with a spray can, he there'll be a three thousand word description of. Oh look, we'll we'll read them out because I'm I'm sure some people are listening to this just to hear the really really fucked up chapters. And look, I'll I'll deliver on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to those. Those get much more florid. 
So I guess that's evolution. There are some biographical details about Patrick Bateman that are in the book that are absent from the movie. In the movie, he's even more decontextualized. Whereas mm, in the yep. book, things will be mentioned like he works for Pierce and Pierce, <laughs> which is what sort of financial services do they offer? Or is it he just doesn't even go into that? I think it's non-specified. Um, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, he does that. He, he does obviously often make the mergers and acquisitions or murders and executions gag. So, and they're yeah. all vice presidents at a time of like, you know, late 80s. Um, I guess it was, I guess it's set. It must be before the 1987 bond crash, I would think. Like sort of like Apex, yeah, was- Re- Reaganite. It was, the book came out in 1990. I think it was probably set in 80. 80- mid 86 87 Mm. but it's just meant to be the sort of apex where all these young people he said what is he 26 years old 26 27 and they are all vice presidents (laughs) of of pierce and pierce so let's see it was it was copyrighted by brett edison ellis in 1988 all right okay even earlier yeah okay i'm not sure when it's it's set in a a non-specified part of the 80s yeah, yeah, but I guess the 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 assumed premise of it is huge stock market boom pre nineteen eighty seven crash, and where a whole bunch of people with absolutely no talent, uh, other than a pedigree, have just been elevated to absurd social <laughs> status and to know nothing but status. Yeah, and it's is it in the film that I th- I think I remember in the film as well. It's said that. Bateman's dad owns Price and uh, Pierce and Pierce. Yeah, it does in the say book, that in the film. It's made much more explicit in the book when he's having lunch, I think, with a former girlfriend of his before murdering her. She brings up that his dad <laughs> owns Pierce and Pierce. Yeah, um, and and also another thing that's worth mentioning from the uh, book book's point of view is that in Brett Easton Ellis's other books, um, characters make surprise pop up. Uh, appearances so there's like an interconnected universe of weird disaffected characters so i believe in Brett snell's second book the rules of attraction the, the protagonist is named sean and i think he's pat bateman's brother oh. and then pat bateman does make an appearance but but he's a completely like but when he makes an appearance it's just as a completely normal person which adds to the mystery of whether <laughs> he actually does have this secret life or whether it's that I think there are two schools of, I say two schools of thought. I have two and two possible interpretations. One is Which that it is entirely imaginary. Interpretations. Of course, canonical. Uh, one is that all of them, all of them are sort of living these wild imaginary lives, or, which I think is perhaps more likely, they all live in this universe where there is absolutely no sense of emotional affect and no moral or juridical responsibility for anything they do because yeah there's i think i'm not sure if uh sean i know that some of the characters from some of the other books pop at least make a one appearance in american psycho and i know pat bateman makes an appearance in i'm pretty sure it's the rules of attraction um, but, but at least the books that I've read, like, oh, it's just, none of them are as violent as Patrick Bateman, at least in the ones that I've read, but there is a lot of violence. Like in the first book, Lesson Zero, it's basically just, it's set on the West coast in California 
and uh, there's a whole bunch of 21-year-olds who just uh, engage in increasingly degenerate drug-taking behavior, and then there's a bit more child rape in Lesson Zero than there is in American oh, Psycho. But, <laughs> but yes, so 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 Brett East, so American Psycho is part of a broader world of complete moral disillusion that Brett East Nellis has created in, across his books. Yeah. I didn't know that at all. You, because you've met him briefly. Yes, I went to his book launch. I went to his book launch for his book, Imperial Bedrooms, which was a sequel to Lesson Zero, which was book came out in 2010 and he came to Melbourne at the um, Athenaeum Theatre. And he's a, he's, a, he's a funny guy. He's just a pretty normal, slightly pudgy gay dude who, while he was on stage talking, he just he, he was just consistently using Grinder. Do, do you remember Grinder? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was looking for Grinder matchups in the audience. And then, yeah, just um, he had a book signing. Um, so, you know, I had to... A good three minute, three or four minute chat with him. Just uh, uh, we we were talking about his book, The Informers, which was turned into a film as well, um, which he disliked and I liked. But anyway, it was just a normal back and forth book chat, and he seems, well, he seems like a pretty normal dude. Um, but I I think I read somewhere that even he was a little bit disturbed by the amount of. Uh, by what he learned while doing research for American Psycho, because he went through just like so many like autopsy and like cr crime scene reports from serial killers and had to do like really intense research into how to like really savagely murder people. And he said that he found that a little bit confronting. Yeah. the Especially the torture and execution scenes in this book are revolting. The notoriety this book's gained for how shocking some of the scenes are, I think is probably justified. They're, they're so disgusting. Absolutely revolting. So naturally, I, I have written down some of those as quotes, and I will read them, but, man, they're awful. They're so disgusting. Well, I, should, I, I, should, I should say, I, I think um, th th this seems quite quaint now, but back in 2009 or 2010 when I uh, went to buy the book, from a bookstore, I went down to the local bookstore, and it was it was uh, uh, shrink wrapped with an R eighteen label on it. So it's like one of the few times you had to get ID'd to buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is it is repulsive, and really, I think your enjoyment of the book will entirely depend upon how entertaining you find Patrick Bateman to be as a character, because the book is an extended character study of Patrick Bateman. And also just to what extent you can you can hold your nose while he describes like hooking up a woman's breasts to a car battery and frying them until they explode and then complaining about the smell of burned fat smeared on his walls. <laughs> it's just so repulsive. It's when, so when he's, disgusting. When he's, when, he, when he's cooking human brain. <laughs> yeah, and then feeding it to dogs when he goes on a walk. <laughs> there, there, I remember there was a section where it was so offhand. He was talking about how he was going for a walk and feeding pieces of Ursula's cooked brain to passing dogs, and that's all, all the context you're given. You never hear anything more about this woman. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely incredible. 
And it's, yeah, I think what I also find so funny is that, and I think this is obviously part of the whole, the whole structure of the, uh, of the characters' interrelationships is that all of them speak in such a repulsive way that it's entirely plausible that all of them are engaging in this kind of behavior. And that makes sense when, in the context of the broader Brett Easton Ellis universe, when uh, in other books, you know, Pat Baton will turn up as a normal person, uh, vice versa. I think his brother turns up as a normal person um, and there's all these cameos that uh, it, it's entirely plausible that everyone is all like this. <laughs> because, I mean, I mean, aside from the extreme violence, I mean, I guess Pat Bateman does distinguish himself from uh, Price and McDermott and Van Patten insofar as he speaks more openly about his admiration for serial killers. But aside from that, they're all constantly making anti-Semitic remarks, extremely sexist remarks, homophobic remarks. Um, yeah. And then Pat Bateman will start talking about Ed Gein. <laughs> or or what's, that, was, that, what's that, that classic piece of dialogue where he goes, uh, Ed Gein? No. Is he the maitre d' at Canal Bar? No. Serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> is, is he the maitre d' at Canalva? <laughs> this is, I find it interesting that Brett Easton Ellis was surprised to find out that people thought that maybe this was all in Patrick Bateman's head because the book really does lend itself to that. Given that not only does... Everybody confuses Patrick Bateman for someone else and Patrick Bateman confuses other people for other people. And yeah. I interpreted that as Brett Easton Ellis making things ambiguous as to whether people just don't know that Patrick Batman's doing these things because it's all in Patrick Batman's head or because they literally just do not recognize that it was Patrick Batman and it also what further what further um deepens that ambiguity is the fact that Patrick Batman especially as the book goes on he just starts telling people about the things he's done and they don't seem to notice he'll in the middle of a conversation, say some really repulsive stuff to someone, start talking about killing people, and they... It's not that they think he's joking. They simply don't seem to notice. It doesn't register with them, which... Yeah. It, it has this ambiguity of, okay, is everybody just in their own world? They're so disconnected from one another and so self-absorbed that they're not listening to each other, even when Patrick Bateman is telling them he's a serial murderer... Or is he not telling them these things at all? Yeah, I I, I, I tend towards the former interpretation because yeah, it, it's not it's not only that everyone uh, uh, misremembers uh, each other's names, doesn't know or don't know and don't care to know each other's names, but they are all that they are all just so completely unsurprised by by what is being said because i mean in american psycho it's a bit more ambiguous because you get it just from brett easton ellis's sorry brett easton ellis's you get just from pat bateman's first person narration but like take for instance like in his first book less than zero you've got so many more characters engaging in group acts of brutality like like child rape for instance and and none of none of them are, are put off at all by this. So it wouldn't surprise me if this mm. is just an extension of that into a different domain where it's entirely plausible that 
Price or Van Patten or McDermott are doing all the same things. It's just a little bit more ambiguous in American Psycho because you don't hear about any of the other characters doing violence, whereas in you know the, his first book you do. I wonder too, so a piece of evidence that would support that would be that he goes on this rampage later in the book where, as I mentioned earlier, he seems to depersonalise. The narration starts to take place in the third person describing what Pat Bateman's doing and he's running around shooting people and he kills a taxi driver in the process of this. And then afterwards he gets into a taxi and the taxi driver recognises him and starts saying, there's a wanted poster for you. I know who you are. You killed, I forget his name, a a taxi driver. Mm -hmm. And the taxi driver drives Pat Bateman out, I think to the docks or something like that and at gunpoint, takes his wallet and his watch and things like that. Mm. And again, it's left somewhat ambiguous as to whether he's correctly identified Patrick Bateman and whether he's talking about the man that Patrick Bateman killed because Patrick Bateman never knows this man's name. He just shoots him. That shows that Patrick Bateman might be having an effect in the world outside of his own head. But yeah, again, I, I, it's, still, I think, it's still left somewhat ambiguous. I think thematically speaking, though, and again, like putting it in the context of at least the stuff that I've read, I mean, his over, uh, Brett Easton Ellis's overarching theme in the early books are that it's about the elite rich people who simply have no care or responsibility, at least amongst their own circles. But that doesn't mean mm. that, that what they do doesn't affect the lower classes. So it's interesting that a lower class person, the cab driver, is the one that actually holds them to account, whereas all yeah. the rich people are completely different. And it's a you know, the book is titled American Psycho. And despite the fact that his name is Patrick Bateman, everyone is misusing each other's names. And I think maybe that's meant to lend the impression that, you know, in a way, he's sort of a psychotic everyman. Like every every upper yeah, class yeah. American might be like this. Yeah, and it's not merely that the the taxi driver, one of the few poorer characters in the story who talks, because of course there are a lot of homeless people that Patrick Bateman and his friends all mock, <laughs> but like, hold out dollar bills to them, then yoink them away at the last second and tell them to get a job. Yeah. But the the taxi driver is also one of the few characters who identifies Patrick Bateman. Actually mm. recognizes him. Yeah, yeah. Actually recognizes and yeah. That that's yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, well, one of the few that actually knows who he is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I feel like we should yeah. probably get into some of, if not the plot per se, then maybe in sequential order you can run through some of the uh, passages or highlight quotes that um that you've selected, and then we can. You know, because as you said, it's hard to get an overall picture of the book. Oh, actually, there's one more thing that just sort of occurred to me that might be important. Um, And that's it's something that's evident in his second book, The Rules of Attraction, where it has that modernistic literary conceit where the book starts mid-sentence and then it finishes mid-sentence and the start and the finish link up. So it's just like mm. a continuous loop of a thing, and that and it, and it puts me in mind of whether uh, it, uh, Easton Ellis had any notion of like the idea of just eternal return and just going for more and more nihilistic savagery to actually feel <laughs> some kind of meaning 
in a world without meaning. And uh, if if that if that is possibly true, then that would make a bit more sense of American Psycho as well, because there's just no sense that he's really going anywhere or that anything will change. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, it's a it's a very lonely book. You are completely trapped in Patrick Bateman's subjectivity. <laughs> All right, let's get I into think, the quotes because yeah, yeah. that's just, it's just the funniest thing. I've got a quote here, which is, it's a fairly long one, but I want some of the quotes to be longer, just so people can get an idea of how funny the dialogue is, which, which just shows how hollow Patrick Bateman is. He has very little actual personality. His personality is just this mishmash of basically consumer opinions. It's, he's obsessed with people's, um, with people's clothing Everyone's clothing is named in obsessive detail. <laughs> and so many of his talking points or the things he discusses with his friends are things he's clearly just heard on TV or in a newspaper or something like that. And it just, it's so delightfully disingenuous. So here's a quote when he's with, he's with Timothy Price, one of his friends. He's at Evelyn's. So Evelyn is his girlfriend at least mm-hmm. to begin with. Oh, no, his fiance, who's also having yeah. an affair with Price. <laughs> and yeah. It's someone he repeatedly cheats on and just doesn't <laughs> like at all and doesn't like Patrick Bateman either. So <laughs> they're sitting around the dinner table with two of Evelyn's friends who are not of the right class and they don't like them. So, oh, come on, Price, I say. There are more important problems than Sri Lanka to worry about. Sure, our foreign policy is important, but there are more pressing problems at hand. Like what, he asks, without looking away from Vanden. By the way, why is there an ice cube in my soy sauce? No, I start hesitantly. Well, we have to end apartheid for one, and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism and world hunger, ensure a strong national defence, prevent the spread of communism in Central America, work for a Middle East peace settlement, prevent US military involvement overseas. We have to ensure that America is a respected world power. Now, that's not to belittle our domestic problems, which are equally important, if not more. Better and more affordable long-term health care for the elderly. Control and find a cure for the AIDS epidemic. Clean up environmental damage from toxic waste and pollution. Improve the quality of primary and secondary education. Strengthen laws to crack down on crime and illegal drugs. We also have to ensure that college education is affordable for the middle class and protect social security for senior citizens, plus conserve natural resources and wilderness areas and reduce the influence of political action committees. The table stares at me uncomfortably, even stash, but I'm on a roll. But economically, we're still a mess. We have to find a way to hold down the inflation rate and reduce the deficit. We need to provide training and jobs for the unemployed, as well as protect protect existing American jobs from unfair foreign imports. We have to make America the leader in new technology. At the same time, we need to promote economic growth and business expansion and hold the line against federal income taxes and hold down interest rates while promoting opportunities for small businesses and controlling mergers and big corporate takeovers. (laughs) It just, it just, it keeps going though. Like I'm stopping this. In the interest of time, he just keeps going, spewing out these opinions which he clearly doesn't believe, many of which are contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it, the the characterisation of Patrick Bateman is so good in this because instead of telling you that he's just this hollow shell of a man who doesn't really believe anything, 
Brit Easterfellas just has him go on this completely disingenuous tirade. Another yeah, thing that what, I love, this what, really, really elegant piece of characterization is throughout the book, whenever a, whenever a person is not even introduced but just seen by Patrick Bateman, he tells you what they're wearing. But then there's this point at which he he mentions that it's dark and that someone's clothes might be Armani, but he's not sure. And that makes you realise that throughout the rest of the book, it's not the author saying what these people are wearing. It's Patrick Bateman actually knows all of these items of clothing and which company made them. He's just got this encyclopedic knowledge of, of retail fashion that he's using as a, as a framework with which to view the entire world. The guy is so unhinged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what I find so funny is, you know, when he's reciting that, you know, bucket list of absolutely every vague uh, political goal that, you know, either like the Democratic or the Republican Party might take to a presidential election, like, like we need to solve all of these problems all of many of which are mutually contradictory. Like he says, like, we need to remove American influence from the world at the same time as you, know, you presumably would need to use American power to prevent uh, Central American communization. And then at the end of the bit that you, you just read, it talks about like, you know, the need to restrict to the um, you know, perfidious effects of corporate takeover when he is in mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, you know, and like protecting the poor, like the poor and the elderly. And then <laughs> he routinely murders them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's, here's another pr- pretty funny quote. So this quite regularly, so two of Patrick Bateman's friends are, Craig McDermott and someone Van Patten. What's Van Patten's first name? Craig, uh, David. David Van Patten. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's just Van Patten, though. It's such a good name. <laughs> yeah. And whenever they're together, they all just ask each other. They talk about how, oh, we want to write questions to GQ magazine. And they're, they're <laughs> always about fashion. And they always discuss just the most, the most absurd details of men's fashion, and Patrick Bateman always offers very definitive answers about what's right and what isn't. And <laughs> so these these three are at some bar. I think it's at Harry's. And okay, <laughs> Harry's so bar. McDermott and Van Patten are arguing over whether rounded collars are too dressy or too casual, and which tie looks best with them, and what sort of <laughs> shoes you should wear. And so Patrick Bateman says, "Well, guys, I measure my words carefully." The tasseled loafer is traditionally a casual shoe. I glance back at Price, wanting the drink badly. He brushes past Lewis, who offers his hand. Price smiles, says something, moves on, strides over to our table. Lewis once more tries to catch the bartender's attention and once more fails. But it's become acceptable just because it's so popular, right? Craig asks eagerly. Yeah, I nod. As long as it's either black or cordovan, it's okay. What about brown? Van Patten asks suspiciously. I think about this and say... Too sporty for a business suit. <laughs> it just it just continues like this. A distracted Price, his voice still tense, answers quickly with an exact clear enunciation that can be heard over the din in Harry's. It's a very versatile look and can go with both suits and sports coats. It should be starched for dressy occasions and a collar pin should be worn if it's particularly formal. He pauses, sighs and looks as if he's spotted somebody. I turn around to see who it is. Price continues. 
If it's worn with a blazer, then the collar should look soft and can be worn either pinned or unpinned. Since it's a traditional, preppy look, it's best if balanced by a relatively small, four-in-hand knot. He sips his martini, recrossing his legs. Next question. Yeah, I, th- I think what's I think what's quite apparent there. I think what's quite apparent there is, uh, especially when uh, he, he uses the verbal formulation, it can be worn like this or like that. Uh, it, it's as clearly indicative that he simply wrote learnt descriptions from yeah, like catalogues yeah. or issues of Gentleman's Quarterly, GQ magazine. <laughs> it's. Just because I think part of it is just a difference in the amount of data. Because there is much more Patrick Bateman in the American Psycho novel Mm. and much more dialogue with the people around him, you get much more of the impression that, yes, they're just rote learning stuff, that there's there's actually nothing behind them. They're just this Mm. collection of of rote learned behaviours that they think are socially acceptable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or or not even socially acceptable, uh, which will give you a higher status in the constantly yeah, yeah. shifting uh, status market of fashion and apparel. I find in that scene the dynamic between Patrick Bateman and Price is different to in the movie. In the book, Price seems more dominant over Bateman. Mm, like he's yeah, sleep, yeah. he's sleeping with Bateman's fiance. In conversations, Pat Bateman tends to look to Price for affirmation yeah, and tends to just yeah. agree with whatever Price is saying. Yeah. yeah I found the yeah. uh, Patrick Bateman's submissiveness to certain <clears throat> people was more apparent in the book than it was in the film. Yeah, it is alluded to in the film at the very end when Pat Bateman is admitting all of his crimes to his lawyer and the lawyer just thinks he's putting him on and he says, yo, ba- Bateman... That guy's such a loser. Now, if you'd said Bryce, then I'd believe you. <laughs> but, but yeah, but in in the book, it's more. Uh, which is what I find so funny about that is just like the idea that uh, Price in the book or Bryce in the film is just even more of a psychopath, possibly. <laughs> also, in the book, I think while they're at uh, they're at some sort of club, Price just seems to go mad there are these train tracks like decorative train tracks leading off into a tunnel from the club and while talking to patrick bateman and sniffing cocaine price just keeps looking at them and then eventually just sprints down the train tracks and disappears for the rest of the book and he re-emerges later and is (laughs) has a very strange affect that's upsetting patrick bateman and patrick bateman's wondering whether he's gone to rehab or something like that it's really strange and it's it's never explained either, which I find even funnier, just the lack of interest that Patrick Bateman seems to show in his friend or apparent friend just disappearing for a really long period of time. Yeah, yeah, as it like, he only has any kind of response to him when he's in immediate proximity and it can be used as a marker of his own relative status. But this is actually, this is actually a question I have for you because <clears throat> I haven't read or listened to the end of the book in a, you know, in a long time, but I watched the film the other day. And at the end of the film, um, you know, Pat Bateman returns uh, and you've got the reformed Bryce there and he's, you know, just sipping on a mineral water. He's given up drinking and he's making comments about how uh, they're watching Ronald Reagan deliver an address on television. He's like, yeah, how, can, right. how can, he's like, how can, how can he just sit there and lie like that? 
so cynical so cruel <laughs> and then and then like there's no there's no explanation in the film but is there uh, do, does that occur in is that roughly reflective of what happens in the book does he return like and he's yeah. no longer drinking yeah yeah that is what happens right at the end of the book and he's the the scene is it's not exactly the same as in the movie but it's quite similar in that he seems actually disturbed by what Ronald Reagan has done and is doing. But again, it's really ambiguous if he gives a shit or if he's just saying this because he's read it in a newspaper or seen it on TV. But it's still mm. such a retail opinion to hold that you, yeah. you have no insight into where the price has changed. <laughs> All you can see is what he's consuming. He's consuming something different. He's consuming mineral water rather than vodka. <laughs> and that is that is the extent of his existence in Patrick Bateman's <laughs> world. <laughs> so actually th th this might be an interesting thing to uh to to explore. Like to what degree can we differentiate at all between the characters? I mean, uh, other than their relative status positions, are there really any differentiating markers between say uh M Van Patten, McDermott, price uh or, or, or like is there anything to indicate that they are in any way different characters or are they all just completely interchangeable it's very hard to say i think so price seems slightly more dominant than the others but mm. apart from that there's very little to separate them <laughs> paul <laughs> owen was somewhat separated from them because he was the one handling the um Fisher, oh, account. Account? Fisher account, <laughs> which is also never explained what it is. It's just everyone wants it. <laughs> and so that sets him apart. And then after he dies, uh, they start, you, you hear people talking about who has the Fisher account now. Like, that's all that matters. They don't care who had the, the, about the person who has the Fisher account. They only care that that person has the Fisher account. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, I know. So, so now, now I'm just getting into associational mode. Um, I just love how much they high five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always like someone will make a really, a really sexist joke, and then there'll be a description about how everyone stands up and high fives each other in a restaurant or something. Yeah, yeah. See, th okay, this is an interesting thing, though. Um, an interesting question is to what extent. Can we say that, uh, you know, to what extent does American Psycho actually have a moral point of view? Like, it, is it anti-consumerist? Is it anti-capitalist? Is it actually feminist? Or is it just gratuitous not, uh, violence and nihilism? What do you think? Because in the film, the film was directed by a woman, but it was a female director who... I think at least self-identifies as quite a firm feminist. And so she was like, yeah, this is a feminist film. Do you think that was uh, intended or do you think, um, like, is it satire in the sense of having a moral point of view or is it purely just cynical humour and nihilism? I guess it's to what extent you distinguish between a book having a moral point of view and a book being obviously disgusted with something. <laughs> because so Brett Easton Ellis's antipathy towards these sort of people is fairly clear 
<laughs> this is a this is a sustained attack on yuppies, but also more broadly people whose entire personality is just defined by the things which they consume. That like y- you're not meant to particularly like Patrick Bateman. I think he, especially <laughs> in the book, he's a pretty repulsive person. <laughs> he's amusing and fascinating, but he is awful. He's just <laughs> such a dislikable person. <laughs> in situating. Like the basically the avatar of mindless consumerism and finance as the dislikable subjectivity of the book. I guess you could argue for that being a moral stance as saying this is bad and not the sort of person you want to be. But he never he never explicitly says mm. this is bad yes. and um. here, here is a way you should behave. It's never prescriptive. He's very much focused on the negative rather than the positive aspect of morality. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'd, an interesting question and a somewhat evasive answer because I'm, I'm more thinking out loud. Yeah, I think it's may, maybe it's an aversive stimulus. He, <laughs> he shows you the most unflattering portrait of hyper-consumerism that he can think of and then tells you to take from that what you will. Yeah, right. Okay, so... I think we should get into some more passages just because, you know, uh, to really yeah, evoke in the, the uh, time. In the interest of time and uh, also in the interest of uh, evoking. Uh, what I'd like to do, if you have any quotes or passages available to you, is to evoke a lot more of the dialogue between like the other characters as well. Because I think they are equally funny. Obviously, Patrick Bateman is dominant because he's the first person narrator. But. Uh, oh, oh, in whatever order you want. Maybe I, I was, I was going to say go sequentially, but as we've already established, I'm not sure sequentialism really matters in this narrative arc, if there is an arc. <laughs> okay, I've just got this huge list of quotes. I'll just flick through them and pick ones that I find particularly funny. So yeah, here's one. <laughs> He's at exclusive initially and then goes home so ex- exclusive is his his health club <laughs> and so many scenes in the book take place here of him telling you that he's worked out for two hours or him getting a massage and a manicure or something like that but here's the quote after more stretching exercises to cool down i take a quick hot shower and then head to the video store where i return two tapes i rented on monday she male reformatory and body double, but I re-rent body double because I want to watch it again tonight, even though I know I won't have enough time to masturbate over the scene where the woman is getting mm-hmm. drilled to death by a power drill since I have a date with Courtney at 7.30 at Cafe Luxembourg. <laughs> That's pretty much the distillation of this entire book. It's exclusive fitness club, masturbating to violent horror movies and then going out to some restaurant for dinner with a woman that he's having sex with yes now is it um where's sorry there's a i feel like there was a quote that i sent you last night regarding courtney that i found really funny um ah sorry i'm literally just scrolling through my messages right now right now okay i can't find it but like there's (laughs) there's there's more than one occasion in the book where like People have to be physically woken up at dinner, especially the women, because they are constantly like fucked on Ambien or Halcyon or, or any of these kinds yeah. of jokes. And they're like, it's like Courtney falls asleep after the exertion of having to read the menu. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and Patrick Bateman's constantly blasted on Xanax and cocaine. <laughs> just continuously <laughs> on Xanax and cocaine. It just doesn't stop. So many of the funny scenes in this in the the movie and in the book are the same. So they've like the the scene where Pat Bateman tries to get a place at Dorsia. And Dorsia is a a man <laughs> of the book. And tries to get a last minute reservation. The person on the other side of the phone just starts laughing. That's almost exactly <laughs> lifted from the book because it's just such a good scene. <laughs> Here we go. Here's a. Um, I found this funny because I know people who dress like this at university. So Patrick Bateman <laughs> is walking along and looks at someone. So suddenly I find myself eyeing a very pretty homeless girl sitting on the steps of a brownstone on Amsterdam, a styrofoam coffee cup resting on the step below her feet. And as if guided by radar, I move toward her, smiling, fishing around in my pocket for change. Her face seems so young and fresh and tan for a homeless person's. It makes her plight all the more heartbreaking. As an aside... To this point, I think he's already murdered a homeless man. Or no, he's just ripped out a homeless man's eyes with a knife and then <laughs> stomped his dog. But because this woman's a bit pretty, he suddenly moved. So I examine her carefully in the seconds it takes to move from the edge of the sidewalk walk to the steps leading up to the brownstone where she sits, her head bowed down, staring dumbly into her empty lap. She looks up, unsmiling, after she notices me standing over her. My nastiness vanishes, and, wanting to offer something kind, something simple, I lean in, still staring, eyes radiating sympathy into her blank, grave face, and dropping a dollar into the styrofoam cup, I say, good luck. Her expression changes, and because of this I notice the book, Sartre, in her lap, and then the Columbia book bag by her side, and finally the tan-coloured coffee in the cup, and my dollar bill floating in it, and though all this happens in a matter of seconds, <laughs> it's played out in slow motion, and she looks at me, and then the cup, and shouts, shouts, hey, what's your goddamn problem? And frozen, <laughs> hunched over the cup, cringing, I stutter, I didn't, I didn't know it was full. And shaken, I walk away, <laughs> hailing a taxi, and heading toward Hubert's in it. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really funny when Patrick Bateman is shaken by things because he he's not invincible. He is shaken by certain things in the book, but it's never mind-bending violence or raping someone or something like mm. that. It's only ever when he's socially embarrassed that he, he freezes up well, <laughs> taking a uni student for a homeless woman. I think I think the only times that he is uh, that he's ever actually discomforted is when. His interaction does not go to, does not follow a preordained social script. So in that time, he's got a social script involved that he thinks that he knows what's going to happen, but that he's completely discombobulated by the fact that she turns out not to be a homeless person, that she's just like <laughs> some like hot college student who's reading like Sarge. Does it actually say which Sarge book he, she's reading? No, it just says Sarge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I just found a, a fantastic piece of <laughs> piece of dialogue. He's at, of course, he's at dinner at some fancy restaurant. Also, I should say his descriptions of the descriptions of the food that people order are hilarious, like <laughs> mud soup, mud soup, and <laughs> everything's absolutely bizarre. And there's this one scene where the restaurant is just just has normal stuff on the menu. And everyone seems really confused about ordering a roast chicken or something like that. But 
Patrick Bateman is out with Courtney, who's, I think she's either Van Patten or McDermott's girlfriend, but Patrick Bateman's having <laughs> sex with her and just keeps taking her out in public really openly. And um, Patrick Bateman starts competing with Scott, who's another guy at the table, over who has a nicer sound system. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> ridiculous. It's, uh, and like, I'm sure I'll mispronounce some of the brand names because I didn't know what they were. So it's Iowa, Scott's saying. You've got to hear it. The sound, he pauses, closes his eyes in ecstasy, chewing on cornbread, is fantastic. Well, you know, Scotty, the Iowa is okay. Oh, holy shit. Dream on, Scotty, I'm thinking. But Sansui is really top of the line. I pause, then add, I should know. I own one. But I thought <laughs> Iowa was top of the line. Scott looks worried. Scott looks worried, but not yet upset enough to please me. No way, Scott, I say. Does Iowa have digital remote control? Yeah, he says. Computer controls? Uh-huh. What a complete and utter doofus. Does the sound system come with a turntable that has a metacrylate and brass pr platter? Yes, the bastard lies. Does your system have an acuophase T106 tuner, I ask him? Sure, he says, shrugging. Are you sure, I say? Think carefully. Yeah, I think so, he says, but his hand shakes as it reaches for more of the cornbread. What kind of speakers? Well, Duntech would, he answers too quickly. So sorry, dude. You've got to have the infinity IRS five speakers, I say, or wait a minute, he interrupts. Five speakers? I've never heard of five speakers. See, that's what I mean, I say. If you don't have the fives, you might as well be listening to a goddamn Walkman. What's the bass <laughs> response on those speakers? He asks suspiciously. An ultra-low 15 hertz, I purr, enunciating each word. That shuts him up for a minute. And drones on about a non-fat frozen yogurt and chow-chows. I sit back, satisfied at having stumped Scott, but too quickly he regains his composure and says, anyway, trying to act blissfully uncaring that he owns a cheap, shitty stereo. We bought the new Phil Collins today. You should hear how great groovy kind of love sounds on it. It's just, <laughs> there are so many interactions like this where Patrick Bateman obviously has just memorised the, the technical details of different types of consumer products and just uses these details to compete with other people over who has a better sound system or something equally meaningless. Yeah. And, and, and I always, I always love the um, constant invocation of suspicion amongst each other. Like they're always suspicious of whether the other one is lying or not. Like when Paul, when Paul Owen has a reservation at Dorsia, it's like got, got an eight thirty reservation at Dorsia. Reservation at Dorsia. How did he swing that? He's probably lying. <laughs> 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 like, and it's just and that. Like when Pat, but I, and I'm I'm sure this does occur in a book, but obviously, um, it I remember it distinctly from the film when um Paul Owen Allen, as he is in the film, <laughs> is is one upping uh is obviously one upping uh, Pat Bateman. It's sort of like like you know how's the X account going? Bateman responds, hmm, good. And then Paul Owen says, hmm, good, really? Just good? Not great? He's like, that's a nice tan you got there, Bateman. How'd you get it done? Salon. 
Hmm. Uh, salon. I've got a tanning bed at home. You should really invest in one. Yeah. In in the book, I think it's Price who mentions that he has a tanning bed at home, and it just drives not only Pat Bateman but everyone around him crazy. And then immediately, Patrick Bateman starts asking Jean, his secretary, to mm. order order a tanning bed for him, so that he can have it at home. <laughs> I just love the the confluence of um. The, the confluence of lifestyle habits, like someone who is constantly blasted on cocaine and Xanax and yet works out so much and then tans. Like, what? Um, the, the character of Jean is an interesting one, though. I mean, because she, yeah, and she, she seems like the only... She seems like the only... Uh, slightly well-adjusted or at least sympathetic character in the book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think Pat Bateman's ex-girlfriend, the one that he he meets and then murders when he finds out she's dating the chef at Dorsia, she seemed (laughs) slight. She also seemed like more of a human being as well. But I agree, Jean is the most human-seeming character in this book. So I was I thought that Pat Bateman might have been lying when initially whenever he mentions Jean he says that she's in love with him and she's yeah. constantly admiring him but then it turns out she actually does love him it confesses her love to Patrick Bateman and it actually seems to get through to him he seems when she's telling yeah. him that she yeah. loves him and wants to spend more time with him he mentions that he can feel his emptiness recede slightly and something change within him. <laughs> yeah, is there, like, I mean, it, I'm struggling to think of any reason that would, any reason that would actually justify Gene's affection for him. I mean, what, like, what is the significance of Gene's affection for Patrick Bateman? I don't really like. Is is it is it just that she's just a um, young, vulnerable girl in need of affection and attaches herself to the nearest high status male, or is there anything in Pat Bateman's character that would lend uh, sympathy for, or that would engender sympathy? So this was a really interesting scene. I think what you said definitely is at play, but she also tells Patrick that. She likes him because he's shy and sensitive and she likes Mm. shy men. And it's interesting because it gives some perspective of how Patrick Bateman might be viewed by people who aren't him. Yeah. That he does come across as unsure of himself and shy because Mm. you you only ever get his own self-appraisal, which is he has a very high opinion of himself. Yeah, that that was an interesting scene because that was one of the few times when Brett Asinella seems to give us an an external view of Patrick Bateman. Yes. I do think yeah. Brad Easton Ellis handled this quite well, how you almost only ever have Patrick Bateman's self-appraisal, but there are a few moments of other people hinting at how he might seem to others. I thought that was well handled because it maintains a lot of ambiguity and a lot of mystery about what Patrick Bateman's actually like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But does um, hint at it. And I, I didn't know this. As you were saying, Patrick Bateman appears in other books of his and seems completely normal. Y- yes, yeah. And I guess um, yeah, 
when he just sort of pops up as a completely uh, nondescript, or not nondescript, but completely sort of background Wallflower character, character. I can't remember which book it is, but there's just sort of like, you know, some offhand reference. I think it's in the Rules of Attraction to like Sean Bateman. I, th I think it is the protagonist of Rules of Attraction is, is his brother, but I might be misremembering it. But it's just like, he's just like this completely um, shy, nondescript investment banker in New York. <laughs> and, then like, and, and, and that's just it. But as you were speaking before, you did, uh, you prompted a thought in my mind, which is to what extent is Patrick Bateman, if not homosexual, potentially like bisexual, because he is so offended by Lewis Carruthers and he is, oh. has such a fastidious, <laughs> he has such a fastidious attention to the male form and yeah. only feels loathing and contempt for women. I did wonder that. So, he never he never have sex with another man, and Lewis Carruthers is a gay character in this book who's just in love with Patrick Bateman. There's a scene I think yep. where he runs into him at Macy's and confesses his love to Patrick, <laughs> who is revolted. And Bateman keeps trying to get away, and Carruthers is lying on the ground, like holding on to Patrick Bateman's shoes. Oh yeah. While Patrick Bateman kicks him in the face to make him stop holding on to him, and threatens to murder him. <laughs> <laughs> and what prompts this is in the movie where Bateman goes to strangle Carothers in the male bathroom, but mm. he just he can't go through with it. And in the book, it offers a bit more detail of Bateman saying, "My muscles just won't do it. I just can't strangle him." And Carothers interprets it as Bateman cracking onto him. <laughs> and just the the sheer horror that Patrick Bateman appears to feel at at the the idea that someone might think he's gay is so so funny. Yeah, but it's interesting because Pat Bateman is so discomforted by Carruthers' advances, and yet he is like the pop what like the one character in the book that he actually physically can't go through with murdering. Where he's no compunctions yeah, at all true. about s savagely murdering all these women. So, like, I wonder if that's an angle. <laughs> See, part of the problem that's... with this book is that there are so many potential angles, but there's not enough evidence to give any kind of conclusive answer. It's just sort of question after question. I can't help but feel that that was intentional because it's, it's just too precisely done for it to be a, to be an accident. Yeah, it feels yeah. like yeah. Qu quite a, a meticulous book. Mm, Speaking mm. of, um, you yeah. mentioned brutal murders. Here's a here's a scene. This is the first murder that's really described in detail in this book. Of course, there were things before this, like Patrick Bateman mentioning that uh, either Courtney, I think it would no Evelyn was upset because the woman across from her in her apartment complex was decapitated with a chainsaw recently, and then Patrick oh, yeah. says that he did it. <laughs> yeah. But. This is the first time Patrick Bateman describes killing someone in detail. And this scene is in the movie, but much less graphic. Mm. Where Patrick Bateman comes across Al, a homeless man. And I quote, The bum's not listening. He's crying so hard he's incapable of a coherent answer. I put the bill slowly back into the pocket of my Luciano Soprani jacket and with the other hand stop petting the dog and reach into the other pocket. 
The bum stops sobbing abruptly and sits up, looking for the fiver or, I presume, his bottle of Thunderbird. I reach out and touch his face gently once more with compassion and whisper, Do you know what a fucking loser you are? He stopped... He starts nodding helplessly, and I pull out a long, thin knife with a serrated edge and, being very careful not to kill him, push maybe half an inch of the blade into his right eye, flicking the handle up, instantly popping the retina. The bum is too surprised to say anything. He only opens his mouth in shock and moves a grubby, mittened hand slowly slowly up to his face. I yank his pants down and in the passing headlights of a taxi can make out his flabby black thighs, rashed because of his constantly urinating in the pantsuit. The stench of shit rises quickly into my face and breathing through my mouth, down on my haunches, I start stabbing him in the stomach, lightly, above the dense matted patch of pubic hair. This sobers him up somewhat and instinctively he tries to cover himself with his hands and the dog starts yipping really furiously, but it doesn't attack and I keep stabbing at the bum now between his fingers, stabbing the backs of his hands. His eye, burst open, hangs out of its socket and runs down his face and he keeps blinking which causes what's left of it inside the wound to pour out like red, veiny egg yolk. I grab his head with one hand and push it back and then with my thumb and forefinger hold the other eye open and bring the knife up and push the tip of it into the socket, first breaking its protective film so the socket fills with blood and then slitting the eyeball open sideways and he finally starts screaming once I slit his nose in two, lightly spraying me and the dog with blood. Gizmo blinking to get the blood out of his eyes. I quickly wipe the blade clean across the bum's face, breaking open the muscle above his cheek. Still kneeling, I throw a quarter in his face, which is slick and shiny with blood, both sockets hollowed out and filled with gore, what's left of his eyes literally oozing over his screaming lips in thick, webby strands. Calmly, I whisper, There's a quarter. Go buy some gum, you crazy fucking fella. I... Brett Easton Ellis has a lot of racial slurs. For the purposes of not being cancelled, I will replace them with fella when I read them out. (laughs) Then I turn to the barking dog, and when I get up, stomp on its front legs while it's crouched down ready to jump at me, its its fangs bared, immediately shattering the bones in both its legs, and it falls on its side squealing in pain, front paws sticking up in the air at an obscene, satisfying angle. I can't help but start laughing, and I linger at the scene, amused by this tableau. When I spot an approaching taxi, I slowly walk away. And then he, he goes to McDonald's and orders something that Al would get. So he gets a vanilla milkshake and enjoys having blinded this man. He doesn't actually kill him because Al shows up later in the book. And oh, Patrick Bateman right? just... Yeah, Patrick Bateman goes to him and whispers in his ear. And the man just flips out and is terrified because he, rec- he recognises Bateman's voice. But Bateman doesn't kill him. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. There is a, as you mentioned, the, um, the fella reference. <laughs> like I think I sent you a quote last night of it, uh, which is not unrepresentative, but just how just consistently racist he is. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's it's nonstop. <laughs> I'm just like, as we're speaking, I'm just sort of trying to think about like what are the major turning points in the book. I mean, because, like, is there any way to impose any kind of, like, plot arc on the book? I mean, because uh, this was done in the movie, and maybe the movie lends a little bit more narrative coherence than the book does, but 
Like, what are the major actual turning points? Because so far we've just described a whole bunch of decontextualized Pat Bateman scenes describing people's fashion, people's apparel, people at restaurants, people going to the gym, him murdering people, um, him being racist, him being homophobic. But, you know, from the start, you know, where it says, yeah, what, what's the opening? Like, you know, abandon all hope, ye who enter is scrawled in graffiti somewhere to the end yeah. of the book. Like, what are the major plot turning points? Or are there any? Uh, I don't think there are major turning points. There are actions that Patrick Bateman takes which are referenced later, which I guess is the best that qualifies as turning points. So, for example, killing Paul Owen does mm. have repercussions later through the book because there's a detective who starts looking into Owen's death, although that never comes to anything. Uh, I guess mm. breaking up with Evelyn, could that, that has an impact. Beginning to date Jean somewhat changes things, but there are very few events which have consequences, which makes so much of what happens in the book feel even more hollow. And again, I think that's intentional. Mm. I think he was mm. trying to convey that it just does not matter what Patrick Bateman does. Okay, so how, I mean, I'm not saying that we should um, end here, but just to, uh, to, to, rem to remind me, how does the book actually end? And does it end any differently from the film? Because I'm very hazy on the book's ending, but it's been too long. Like, I have a feeling that there was a bit of a, a, a more extended, um, a more extended and possibly ambiguous ending to, to the book. But uh, is there any tangible difference to the way the book ends as opposed to how the movie ends? I mean, the detective's investigation goes nowhere. Uh, he establishes that Paul Allen or Paul, or Paul Owen was sighted in London. Nothing happens to Pat Bateman. Um, but is there, like, in the, final, in the final pages of the book, is there any sort of resolution to it? Or is it more or less mirror what happens in the film? No, there's no resolution. I think the movie ends more definitively. So the speech about you know, when you shake my hand, you might feel flesh and there is simply no Patrick Bateman here or whatever he says, that is a speech that, or an internal monologue that Patrick Bateman has, but that doesn't end the book. Patrick mm. Bateman ends the book by he's with Price, McDermott, Van Patten and leaves um, because he says he has to return some videotapes and just see he's... Um, leaving Harry's, because that's where they're all meeting, and just sees the sign above um, above these velvet drapes, and the sign above them says, this is not an exit. And that's, yep. that's how the book ends. It's just okay. so nihilistic. Because it's, that's... it's unresolved. It's just Patrick Bateman continues being Patrick Bateman. Okay, because that's how the movie ends too. Uh, yeah, he's sitting. Behind oh, does he? And, and does he, he leave? I thought it was. Um, he he says something like, "This was all a waste of time," or something like that, and the movie just ends. Um, he, he does say that, but um, as the camera's zooming in, you see behind him there's a door that says, "This is not an exit." Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> it's, like, as we're speaking about this, it's it's quite a hard book in a way to talk about. So why don't you? Uh, because I, I just, 
I feel in terms of like, we've more or less gotten all the interpretive meat off the bone. I'm yeah. not sure what else there really is to say other than going through some other funny, highlights, funny which I will laugh at. Also, maybe for the for the benefit of the of the listeners to this august podcast, why is it that you decided to read American Psycho and why should others read it? I chose to read it because it just seems like such good fodder for this podcast. I th- oh. I'm pretty sure there is someone in the Discord server who was quoting American Psycho, or they, they have the cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks uh, in, their, in their bio or something like that. It just seems like the, the sort of book that many listeners would appreciate. It's also the sort of book where many people have seen the film multiple times but haven't read the book. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just so repulsive in so many ways that it feels like a natural fit for this. I also wanted to read more novels. Mm, mm, and talk about mm. them on the podcast, and and this one seemed very very good for that. I mean, I must say it's probably one of the more mainstream texts you've uh, studied uh, in, in the course of this podcast. <laughs> it's better. It's better known. However, I'd say it's mm. just as extreme as most other things we've we've done for this. I think it's part part of the charm of it is also just part of the elusivity of or the elusiveness of Brett Easton Ellis himself I mean like why did he write this book <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> like, like I mean because it's extremely well done and it's extremely funny yeah. it's extremely um, well written but like you know there are it's it's not thematically that different from his earlier books and in the 1980s, so, I mean, he would have written this book when he was pretty young. I think his first book came out maybe 1985 or something, or maybe 1983 or 4. He would have been in his early 20s. I imagine he was only maybe our age, late 20s or 30s, when he came out with American Psycho. But, like, uh, one of his pals, um, an author named Jay McInerney, wrote a book called Bright Lights, Big City, which is very, very similar um, except uh, the entire book. The book is also just about a, a rich, disaffected uh, cocaine addict, uh, except the entire book is written in the second person. So uh, you, you had these books coming out in the 80s by, you know, especially Brett Easton Ellis and Jay McInerney, and then it comes out like, was Brett Easton Ellis just simply, was he simply going for shock value? Like, part of me thinks yes, but at the same time, it's too well it's too well executed and it's too good a piece of art for it to just be that and i just find it sort of baffling that's my feeling too that so i i haven't read any other books by his uh, by him so this did feel like an examination of consumerist nihilism mm. um and not a rehashing of other things he said which it sounds like it in some way is i the book is just too meticulously done and too well written, I think, to be purely for shock value. Mm. I definitely think things are put in there for shock value, but the shock value serves an artistic purpose in that it's so repulsive and then just nothing comes of it. It's totally meaningless. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose perhaps, like, yeah, 
one of the great achievements of the book is how something can be so repulsive and yet so funny. I mean, like, it is quite yeah. an achievement. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, looking I just, back I just on it. I just came across a, a quote of the, um, it's when Patrick Bateman tries to strangle uh, Lewis Carothers and and it doesn't work and when the, the love affair or the one-sided love affair begins between the two of them. And this is when, so they're all sitting at lunch and Bateman seems characters get up to go to the bathroom and Bateman follows him and tells the table, listen, I say, pushing my chair in, I just want everyone to know that I'm pro-family and anti-drug. Excuse me. <laughs> I, just, I just love that line. <laughs> and, then, and then this scene just after Bateman tries to strangle him and it doesn't work is so good at showing how incredibly uncomfortable Patrick Bateman is about homosexuality. So, where are you going? He whispers, bewildered. So that's Carothers whispering this. I, I've got a... Stumped, I look around the crowded dining room and then back at Lewis's quivering, yearning face. I've got to return some videotapes, I say, <laughs> jabbing the elevator button. Then, my patience shot, I start to walk away and head back towards my table. Patrick, he calls out. I whirl around. What? He mouths, I'll call you. With this expression on his face that lets me know, that assures me my secret is safe with him. Oh my God, I practically gag. And shaking visibly, I sit back at our table, completely defeated, my gloves still on, and gulp down the rest of a watery J&B on the rocks. As soon as I've seated myself, Van Patten asks, Hey Bateman, what's the right way to wear a tie clip? What's the right way to wear a tie bar or clasp? While a tie holder is by no means required business wear, it adds to a clean, <laughs> neat overall appearance, but the accessory shouldn't dominate the tie. Choose a simple gold bar or a small clip and place it at the lower end of the tie at a, 45, at a downward 45-degree angle. So I, I, got, I got the context slightly wrong. So this is after he's left the bathroom um, where he, he tried to strangle Lewis, but it didn't work. While he's in the bathroom, it also describes him like frantically washing his hands while his gloves are still on yeah which uh, is rendered so so well in the movie like you yeah, well, yeah. When you've got uh, uh christian bale just sort of like and as the movie as the, the movie well, yeah the movie is so good because you know as i say it's a highlights reel of of the book while retaining all the best dialogue but as the movie goes on he's sweat he sweats more and more profusely and he gets more and more just haggard looking while also being like covered in like moisturizers and facial cleansing products. <laughs> like when he's in the bathroom, just frantically washing his leather gloves. <laughs> like, 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 but actually th this, this is a question though, because in, the, uh, you can tell me um, about whether or not this is happens in the book, but in the film, it's, um, it's his, failed attempt to murder Lewis Carruthers and the homoerotic subtext with Carruthers saying, you know, uh, I'll call you or call me that like that. I'm pretty sure that precipitates his final murderous rampage. But is that a consistent thing in the book? Are there things that set Pat Bateman off? There, there are certain things that make him angry. So definitely jealousy. So he, I forget her name. He, had a girlfriend at Harvard, I think it was his first girlfriend, who broke up with him, and it's implied because he beat her, she left him. 
Mm. And he meets her again and they go to lunch and she mentions to him that she's dating the chef from Dorcia and it just flips <laughs> him off into a rage and he decides to murder her and does. He, like, crucifies her and cuts oh, out her tongue and things like that. <laughs> so there, yeah. Are, yeah. there are things like <laughs> jealousy that get him really angry. Mm. And then and then it's also with Paul Owen. He's extremely jealous of Paul Owen for having more money than him, for having the Fisher account. And that Paul Owen... Interestingly, he doesn't seem upset that other people mistake him for other people, but the fact that Owen keeps mistaking him for Marcus Halberstam really does get to, get to him. <laughs> There's, so there, there is the scene where he kills Paul Owen and mm. he's, he's organised a dinner with Paul Owen under the name Marcus Halberstam at Texacana, which is apparently a bad <laughs> restaurant in the book. <laughs> and Patrick Bateman, before meeting him, is really nervous. Shows up twenty minutes late, and then um, look, I'll I'll just quote: "What I've mistaken at first for pomposity on Owen's part is actually just drunkenness." When I press for information about the Fisher account, he offers useless statistical data that I already know about: how Rothschild was originally handling the account, how Owen came to acquire it. And though I had Gene gather this information for my files months ago, I keep nodding, pretending that this primitive info is revelatory and saying things like, this is enlightening, while at the same time telling him I'm utterly insane and I like to dissect girls. Every time I attempt to steer the conversation back to the mysterious Fisher account, he infuriatingly changes the topic back to either tanning salons or brands of cigars or certain health clubs or the best places to jog in Manhattan. And he keeps guffawing, which I find totally unappetizing. I'm drinking southern beer for the first part of the meal, pre-entree, post-appetizer, and then switch to Diet Pepsi midway through since I need to stay slightly sober. I'm, a, I'm about mm. to tell Owen that Cecilia, Marcus Halberstam's girlfriend, has two vaginas and that we plan to wed next spring in East Hampton, but he interrupts. And it's just like, <laughs> it's almost like seeing in Paul Owen, Patrick Bateman from the outside, because yeah. you learn nothing of his life and he just keeps talking about things like tanning and jogging. Yeah, and then he, he basically just takes Paul Owen... Um, back to his apartment and kills him with an axe. Interestingly, the murders of men in this book are much less gratuitous than the murders of women. Because also before this, he murders a gay man walking a dog just in mm. on the street in broad daylight. Yeah. All, he, all he does with Owen is hits him in the face once with an axe and then watches him bleed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bethany, no, that's, that's it. Bethany's Bethany. the person he used to date at Harvard who broke up with him. And he, uh, he gets lunch with her and he's so nervous. Although he, also, he does fuck with her. He, uh, he, he's obviously trying to impress her, but also trying to mess with her. He gives her a poem that he's written and <laughs> forces her to read it out. And basically it's just, it's full of the N-word. <laughs> and he forces her to read it out loud, and people at her other tables are turning around and looking at her and looking disgusting, uh, disgusted. <laughs> He's just <laughs> forcing her to do it. <laughs> so this thing, well, she smiles, then notices the table slightly shaking. What's, what's wrong with your leg? My leg? Oh, I look down at it and then back at her. 
It's the music. I like the music a lot. The music that's being played. <laughs> what is it, she asks, tilting her head, trying to catch a refrain of the new age music coming from the speakers hooked to the ceiling over the bar. <laughs> new age music. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, she says, have you gone to any concerts lately? No, I say, wishing she hadn't brought this of all topics up. I don't like live music. Live music, she asks, intrigued, sipping San Pellegrino water. Yeah, you know, like a band, I explain, sensing from her expression that I'm saying totally the wrong things. Oh, I forgot. I did see you too. How are they, she asks. I liked the new CD a lot. They were great. Just totally great. Just totally... I pause, unsure of what to say. Bethany raises her eyebrows quizzically, wanting to know more. Just totally Irish. I've heard they're quite good live, she says, and her own voice has a light, musical lilt to it. What else do you like? Oh, you know, I say, completely stuck. The Kingsman, Louie Louie, that sort of stuff. Gosh, Patrick, she says, looking at every part of my face. What? I panic immediately, touching my hair. Too much moose? You don't like the Kingsman? No, she laughs. I just don't remember you being so tan back at school. I had a tan then, didn't I, I ask. I mean, I wasn't Casper the Ghost or anything, was I? I put my elbow on the table and flex my biceps, asking her to squeeze the muscle. <laughs> After she touches it, reluctantly, I resume my question. Was I really not that tan at Harvard? I ask, mock worriedly. But worriedly. <laughs> the scene with Bethany is funny because Patrick Bateman's insecurities are so obvious here. And I think Bethany is one of the more humanised characters because she, she seems to show genuine concern, like trying to calm Patrick Bateman down. She obviously knows him, and he was obviously like this at Harvard. His insecurities about his hair and tan and things like that, she seems to be aware of and is just trying to calm him down. And this was probably... Her murder was the one that I found most upsetting because she as opposed to basically all of the other people that he kills, was actually quite a... She was somewhat humanised. Mm. So, um, yeah, it, he, it, he, basically, it, he then takes her home, like knocks her out, nails her hands to wooden boards with a nail gun, bites her fingers off, cuts off her nipples, cuts out her tongue, rapes her. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's, it's really disgusting. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I don't think um, she she doesn't appear in the film. I don't think. I think that's a only a subplot in the book. Yeah, I don't think she appears in the the movie. Also, with Bethany's murder, Patrick Bateman he does this thing a few times, but doesn't do it enough that it loses its impact. Where there'll be a scene where he's he's just brutalizing someone, and then. The next scene, or a scene very close after, will be a long discussion of pop music. Yeah. <laughs> like, shortly after, he talks about how um, he, he kills her. Then in the next chapter, he's on the phone with McDermott and Courtney. Oh, no, he's, he's um, going to Nell's, which is some club with McDermott and Courtney, and they're all <laughs> competing to see who can name the greatest number of bottled water brands. And Patrick Bateman is, is correcting the, the other two when they, they say the wrong thing about bottled water brands. And he's just thinking about Bethany's body. And then the, the immediate next chapter, after he's been discussing um, like her, her mangled corpse, is a discussion of Whitney Houston. 
<laughs> and like I'm not, I'm not going to read out the quotes. Like they're they're pretty tiresome because it will actually be a two or three thousand word discussion of the blandest pop music you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. There's um th- there is one theme which we haven't talked about yet, which um I guess might have a more contemporary salience, or at least in retrospect, which is Patrick Bateman's complete obsession with Donald Trump. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because and this was something that I've I've, I've mentioned I'd mentioned previously, but I I read about a quarter or a third of Donald Trump's 1987 opus, The Art of the Deal. And as I was reading it, I was like, this really <laughs> reminds me of American Psycho. And given how often, <laughs> given how often, often Donald Trump is referenced and given the timing of it, I cannot believe that Brad Easton Ellis didn't study that book and at least use... Yeah, he must be part inspiration for Pat Bateman. This is quite funny because Pat Bateman repeatedly mistakes people for Ivana Trump. Is that Ivana Trump? Is that that Ivana Trump? And then (laughs) it's obvious that Patrick Bateman's obsession with Donald Trump is noted by other characters because quite a few times Courtney or Evelyn will say something about a plaza and then Mm. will look at Patrick Bateman and quickly correct themselves and say, oh, Trump plaza. (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, he's been correcting people when they haven't been referring to things using Donald Trump's name, and it obviously worries him. And he's done it enough that other characters have picked up on it and correct themselves. I really <laughs> enjoyed that piece of characterization. That was that was really good. And it's something I noted in the film, and I again, you'd be able to correct me on whether or not this occurs in the book as well. But when he takes um. Paul Allen or Owen to um, Texarkana or whatever it's called. Um, Paul Owen is criticizing the place. He's like saying, oh, you know, what's happening here? The service is garbage. There's, you know, he said, this is a real beehive activity, Haberstam. This place is hot. Mm-hmm. He says, we should have gone to Dorsia. I could have gotten us a reservation. Then Pat Bateman says, is that Ivana Trump? Is that and Ivana then Trump? And then there's this <laughs> flicker. Then there's this flicker in Paul Allen's eyes, and he looks over, and he you can see him recalibrating his status opinion of where they are. Because if Ivana Trump is there, then that would invalidate all of Paul Owen's prior criticisms. So, like, like the, the, act, the acting are, in the movie the is Trump flawless. Yeah, like, yeah, with Jared Leto as, as Paul Allen. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like the like. The fact that I mean, again, I'm not sure if this occurs in the book, but but if Paul Allen or Owen, uh, he he act it, it it seems as if the Trumps are sort of like this one objective status criterion. So like if if the Trumps validate it, then that is ipso facto validation of wherever they are or whatever they consume. Yeah, I hadn't mentioned that. He he brings up Donald Trump so much. <laughs> he really does. And yeah. Post twenty sixteen, it's just made that much funnier. <laughs> yeah, like because it's not something I, I. I mean, obviously, I, when I read the book, I was you know because as I say, I, I listened to about half the audiobook in the last few days. But before that, I hadn't read the book since I was eighteen, which is twelve years ago, and 
I just, I, as I was listening to it, like, it just, even in the first half that I was listening to, like, he mentions Donald Trump so much. <laughs> and just, but and the, <laughs> the, the similarity in the prose style uh, and the, I don't know, the internal character between the narrator in The Art of the Deal and the narrator in American Psycho is quite, I don't know, it's quite telling. But yeah, post-2016, it really gives it a, a a big boost, as he would say of Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> I've got <laughs> his description of Huey Lewis in the news. That's another one of those very long chapters where he just describes music. It's really funny, actually, in his descriptions of music that... It's a more common thing to do to pretend or to to brag that you like things that fewer other people like, that, that f- not so many people like, to say that you like things which are less commercial. But for Patrick Bateman, the more commercial yes. a piece of music is, the more he likes it. Mm. So he complains that I think Huey Lewis sounded too punk rock on some of his songs. But then the songs that Patrick Bateman does like, he mentions that the production is extremely smooth and clear and that they're very, very uh, commercial songs. I think he even uses that term. I Mm. find it funny that that is his criterion for enjoying music. Just the more bland and the more mass market it is, the more Patrick Bateman really, really enjoys it. And it does seem to deeply resonate with him. Yeah, and, and again, I'm not sure if this occurs in the book, but uh, I'm w- watching a film the other night where the investigator that's um, tracking down the death of Paul Allen or Owen, uh, played by played to perfection by Willem Dafoe in the uh, 2000 film, but he says you know, at one point he breaks up the questioning of Pat Bateman around Paul Allen's disappearance and he just pulls out a Huey Lewis in the News uh, CD, and he says to him, okay, like, do you like Huey Lewis? And and Pat Bateman response says, no, Huey's too black-sounding. <laughs> Apparently what they did to make Willem Dafoe's performance, his performance is perfect, but I heard what they did is they filmed the scenes in three different ways, where one where, is it Detective... Uh, Kimball or something like that. Yeah, Donald uh, Kimball. Uh, yeah, yeah, something Kimball. Where yeah. he, where he was, he was given the instruction that he suspects that Patrick Bateman killed um, Paul Allen in the film. Paul Allen in the book, and then there were. Then he was asked to do the scenes where he was neutral, and then ones where he doesn't believe that Patrick Bateman did it. Oh. And what they did is they just spliced scenes from yeah. those all together, which is why his affect seems so off. Oh, that, that is just so good. Changing. Oh, that's actually it's perfect. Just, because I've been, I've been wondering about that. Because as I say, I, I'm not joking. I've seen that film at least 30 times in my life. <laughs> and, I, I, like, and I'm always blown away by Willem Dafoe. But that actually makes perfect sense. Because each time the camera flicks back to him, like, mm. like it, it's it's a it's a dis, it's there's a discontinuity in Willem Dafoe's yeah. affect, which is completely and it's bewildering. So disturbing. Like he's smiling maniacally, he's completely suspicious, and then he's completely disarming. Like it's just like what? <laughs> it's that's incredible. Um, it might be apocryphal oh, what I've heard. I mean, in the Discord, someone will probably correct 
correct me if I if I've said something wrong, but I think that's how they did it, and it's just it's brilliant. Well, that makes perfect sense. Into I mean, you know that yeah that that would make complete sense in terms of you know how, uh, of how it's presented, of how they pull that off. But yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, like that must be true. I'm completely persuaded by that by that theory. I've got two quotes here. One of them is it, there's this chapter where Patrick Bateman and Evelyn go on holiday at Tim Price's place in the Hamptons, mm. which she happens to have keys to. And Patrick Bateman <laughs> says he doesn't know why, but obviously knows why she has keys to Tim Price's <laughs> holiday home. Yeah. And it's really interesting that so the, the descent into madness of Patrick Bateman in the book is much less monotonic than it is in the film in that there are times when he seems to become slightly more alive. Like he mm. was more human when he was talking to Bethany at lunch before murdering her. Yeah. And in this chapter where he takes Evelyn on holiday, they go on, they go for walks on the beach. He actually listens to her. He buys her a pet dog. Um, mm. He seems to become a bit more human, but that then sours and here's a quote and it shows that he's much more if not conflicted internally than in the film he he's also deeply suffering he is deeply unhappy in the book so i quote everything failed to subdue me soon everything seemed dull another sunrise the lives of heroes falling in love war the discoveries people made about each other The only thing that didn't bore me, obviously enough, was how much money Tim Price made, and yet, in its obviousness, it did. There wasn't a clear, identifiable emotion within me, except for greed and, possibly, total disgust. I had all the characteristics of a human being, flesh, blood, skin, hair, but my depersonalisation was so intense, had gone so deep, that the normal ability to feel compassion had been eradicated, the victim of a slow, purposeful erasure. I was simply imitating reality, a rough resemblance of a human being, with only a dim corner of my mind functioning. Something horrible was happening, and yet I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't put my finger on it. The only thing that calmed me was the satisfying sound of ice being dropped into a glass of J&B. Eventually, I drowned the chow, which Evelyn didn't miss. She didn't even notice its absence. Not even when I threw it in the walk-in freezer, wrapped in one of her sweaters from Bergdorf Goodman. (laughs) We had to leave the Hamptons because I would find myself standing over our bed in the hours before dawn with an ice pick gripped in my fist, waiting for Evelyn to open her eyes. At my suggestion, one morning over breakfast, she agreed, and on the last Sunday before Labor Day, we returned to Manhattan by helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) I just... the Again, the characterisation of Patrick Bateman in this book is done so... There are so many examples of very subtle and very elegant characterization, like him being numb to everything except obviously how much money Tim Price has when he's in his holiday house. (laughs) (laughs) And just the fact that when he he drowned a puppy and then threw its body in the freezer, and the only thing that really seems to stand out to him in this whole thing is the fact that he wrapped it in a sweater from a particular designer. That's the feature that he notes and that is important to Patrick Bateman, not the dead dog. 
Just, just <laughs> the, the fact there was a burged off Goodman sweater. <laughs> and I'll follow that up with a quote from the chapter coming after called Girls, which is where Patrick Bateman invites Christy and Elizabeth to <laughs> two women to his apartment. Yeah. And so he, he murders them. And I'll, I'll read a quote where he's describing the next morning. In the morning, for some reason, Christie's battered hands are swollen to the size of footballs, the fingers are indistinguishable from the rest of her hand, and the smell coming from her burnt corpse is jolting, and I have to open the Venetian blinds, which are spattered with burnt fat from when Christie's breasts burst apart, electrocuting her, and then the windows uh, to... Yeah, electrocuting her, and then the windows to air out the room. Her eyes are wide open and glazed over, and her mouth is lipless and black, and there's also a black pit where her vagina should be, though I don't <laughs> remember doing anything to it, and her lungs are visible beneath the charred ribs. What is left of Elizabeth's body lies crumpled in the corner of the living room. She's missing her right arm and chunks of her right leg. Her left hand, chopped off at the wrist, lies clenched on top of the stand in the kitchen, in its own small pool of blood. Her head sits on the kitchen table, and its blood-soaked face even with both eyes scooped out and a pair of Alan Mickley sunglasses over the holes. Looks like it's frowning. <laughs> I get very tired of looking at it, and though I, don't, I didn't get any sleep last night, I'm utterly spent. I still have a lunch appointment at Odeon with Jem Davies and Alana Burton at one. That's very <laughs> important to me, and I have to debate whether I should cancel it or not. <laughs> it's there are so many scenes of him dispassionately looking at the carnage in his living room and then thinking about lunch dates he has. But like, I mean, as you read that, I mean, that is such a disturbing oh, putting description. sunglasses on the decapitated. I, know, I was head. about to say that, but like, that's like that's and subtle doesn't humor. Remember doing any of it? I know, but just the <laughs> the 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 touch of the stroke of genius to put the sunglasses on the head. It's just so... <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it turns what would be something horrific into something that's still horrific but so blackly humorous. <laughs> y- yes, yeah. Um, now, this is something uh, that is just vaguely... I don't know. Vaguely uh, tossing around the cobwebbed attic of my mind. But I just have a feeling that years and years and years ago, and I read this book originally, there was some reference, perhaps in the epigraph or something like that, to Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky. Now, you, yeah, you, he opens you with know, a quote. You know Dostoevsky. I, I don't really. I mean, I think I've read Notes from Underground maybe, but not in a, in a long time. Is there, is, there, is there much... So that is there any sort of parallel or overlap between these books, or is it really just stop and start at the epigraph and that's it? So I'll the the quote he's picked from notes of the under, notes from under, the underground is both the author of these notes and the notes themselves are of course fictional. Nevertheless, such persons as the composer of these notes not only exist in our society, but indeed must exist, considering the circumstances under which our society has generally been formed. I have wished to bring before the public, somewhat more distinctly than usual, one of the characters of our recent past. He represents a generation that is still living out its days among us. In the fragment entitled Underground, this personage describes himself and his views, and attempts, as it were, to clarify the reasons why he appeared and was bound to appear in our midst. 
The subsequent fragment will consist of the actual notes concerning certain events in his life. So, I'd say it's... I don't remember enough of Knights of the Underground. I think I read it three or four years ago to say that it has a lot to do with American Psycho. Mm. I remember it, as with most things of Dostoevsky's, it's mostly self-loathing, which is thematically appropriate for American Psycho. Yeah. I yeah. don't remember enough to really say yeah, if it's, it's it's one of the troubles I just have have with how looking, how looking at this book in general is. is that that there is yeah, but the, there are so many things that you know, looking at it, you know, let's say assessing it from the point of view of let's say you're assigned this book to write an essay in high school or in university. There are so many potential lines of interpretation, but they just seem to go nowhere. Like you can say, is Patrick Bateman a repressed homosexual? Yeah, maybe there's some evidence for it, but there's nothing dispositive. Is it anti-capitalist? Yeah. Maybe, but it's not dispositive. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's anti-consumerist, I guess, but but there's there's no sense of redemption. I mean... And here I would, no. you know, compare it with what one of, you know, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, one of Brett Easton Ellis's friends, a uh, roughly contemporary author named Jay McInerney, who wrote a book called Bright Lights, Big City, which is covers a lot of similar territory. But at the end of that book, you've got the protagonist. Um, uh, and it's one of the few books I've read. It's written in the second person where it says, like, you know, you, you're not meant to be in a club at this hour of the night, uh, you know, snorting Bolivian marching powder. But at the end of it, like, there's a slightly redemptive scene where so it's like, like, you emerge from the club. It's a new day. You can start over. But there's nothing of that <laughs> in American Psycho. No. Which is sort of like, it's it's very funny, but you can't, it's almost impossible to draw any lesson from it, which is great, but also it yeah, makes it I, quite hard to talk about. I can't about. help but feel that's intentional because it's just, it's it's so well written that I mm. feel like that is, it is very much intentional that not only do none of the characters in it learn anything, you as the reader can't draw anything firm from it. It's pure nihilism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it... I would say um, it, it really does actually, you know, just um, talking through this and uh, listening to some of the audiobook recently, it does actually make me want to return to Brett Easton Ellis' books because apparently his book Glamorama is meant to be like, oh, I'm not sure whether he views it as it, but it's like meant to be like sort of like his best book. And I wonder in what way are... Uh, whether he does develop any further overarching sort of moral point of view. I mean, in my mind, you know, Less Than Zero, his first book, is just really, really, really nihilistic and affectless, but not as funny. The Rules of Attraction, quite, you know, it is funny, but it, that had that was a little bit more of a traditional book. It had a bit more of a storyline. But but interestingly, what what... At least in those three, in the three books, Lessons Zero, Rules of Attraction, and American Psycho, it tracks the same kind of personality at different stages of life. 
So in Lesson Zero, mm, they're all okay. age. They're all age nineteen, jobless, super rich drug addicts in California. In Rules of Attraction, they've graduated to undergraduate uh, life at a liberal arts college, and then American Psycho, it's you know mid twenty, mid to late twenties as yuppies and late eighties. Um, I wonder if Glamorama, which was the next book, continues on this theme, but. I just don't think I appreciated when I was 18 how well-written and funny the books are, but it really does make me want to go back and um, and, and read them. One, yeah. Mm. I was just going to say, yeah, I would like to read Glamorama now that you've said that. Well, what, what, one thing I should just note, which is quite funny, it's just like how much traction uh, the, these books have, have gotten. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a resident of Melbourne, um, in Australia, as is your Jack's originally from Melbourne, uh, and I and I laughed really hard. Like back a few years ago, um, maybe seven years ago, when I was in law school, and I just did absolutely shit tons of drugs. Oddly enough, the places I used to go were th- there was these two establishments were owned by an, an admirer of Brett Easton Ellis, and one was named Less is Than that, Zero, is and Glamour- the other was named Glam- Glamorama. Yeah, is that yeah, actually that's, that's named, named after the book? Yeah, it's the same guy. The, 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 the same guy. The same guy. The same guy had a bar on Chapel Street called Less Than Zero, and then he's got gla- you know, Glamorama, <laughs> which is so funny. <laughs> Fuckhead. <laughs> I, I, I know. Anyway, that's a bit, that's a bit of charming that Melbourne. That's a bit of charming Melbourne trivia. I I know Glamorama still exists. I think Less Than Zero on Chapel Street closed down, um, but. I mean, I, I haven't researched it extensively. I wonder if he... I don't... I would... I think I would know if there was a bar called American Psycho. But <laughs> that might be a bit too on the nose. It might be too well known to be able yeah. to name a bar after. Yeah. But, How uh, about... So let me set the scene. Patrick Bateman is at the zoo in Central Park. Oh, yes. The zoo and he's, he's by the penguin enclosure and looking at the penguins. And he's met a young boy. Would you like... A cookie, I ask, reaching into my pocket. He nods his small head, up, then down, slowly, but before he can answer, my sudden lack of care crests into a massive wave of fury, and I pull the knife out of my pocket and I stab him quickly in the neck. Bewildered, he backs into the trash can, gurgling like an infant, unable to scream or cry out because of the blood that starts spurting out of the wound in his throat. Though I'd like to watch this child die, I push him down behind the garbage can, then casually mingle in with the rest of the crowd and touch the shoulder of a pretty girl, and smiling, I point to a penguin preparing to make a dive. Behind me, if one were to look closely, one could see the child's feet kicking in the back of the trash can. I keep an eye on the child's mother, who, after a while, notices her son's absence and starts scanning the crowd. I touch the girl's shoulder again and she smiles at me and shrugs apologetically, but I can't figure out why. When the mother finally notices him, she doesn't scream because she can only see his feet and assumes he's playing, he's playfully hiding from her. At first she seems relieved that she spotted him and moving towards the trash can she coos, are you playing hide and seek, huh? (laughs) But from where I stand, behind the pretty girl, who I've already found out is foreign, a tourist, I can see the exact moment when she when the expression on the mother's face changes into fear, and slinging her purse over her shoulder, she pulls the trash can away, 
revealing a face completely covered in red blood and the child's having trouble blinking its eyes because of this, grabbing at his throat, now kicking weakly. The mother makes a sound that I cannot describe, something high-pitched that turns into screaming. After she falls to the floor beside the body, a few people turning around, I find myself shouting out, my voice heavy with emotion. I'm a doctor. Move back. I'm a doctor. (laughs) And I kneel beside the mother before an interested crowd gathers around us and I pry her arms off the child, who is now on his back struggling vainly for breath, the blood coming evenly but in dying arcs out of his neck and onto his polo shirt, which is drenched with it. And I have a vague awareness during the minutes I hold the child's head reverently, careful not to bloody myself, that if someone makes a phone call or if a real doctor is at hand, there's a good chance the child can be saved. But this doesn't happen. Instead, I hold it mindlessly while the mother, homely, Jewish-looking, overweight, pitifully trying to appear stylish in designer jeans and an unsightly (laughs) leaf-patterned black wool sweater, shrieks to do something, do something, do something, the two of us ignoring the chaos, the people who start screaming around us, concentrating only on the dying child. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> just Patrick Bateman's insanity, how he just wants to start pretending to be a doctor as well. And while he's doing this, he feels mournful that killing a child isn't really that big a deal for him because the child hasn't achieved anything, doesn't have any real past or future, and it's much better to kill someone in their prime because that death will upset more people. Yeah, yeah. Is he, uh, I'm just, I'm really just thinking out loud here. Well, I've been thinking out loud for the entire entirety of this podcast. But I was just wondering then, like, the justifications behind the killing. Because why is it the case that he kills, you know, I, I sort of get why he kills. You know, there's obvious reasons why he kills the child. Well, there's obvious reasons why he kills, um, you know, his ex-girlfriend. Or there's obvious reasons why he kills the prostitutes. It, it, in some sense, there's a justification or why he kills Paul Allen or Paul Owen. There's a justification insofar as it's a way of keeping his identity in place or eliminating any, not only any competitors to his ego but anyone that might potentially infringe on the type of ego that he is trying to conspicuously stylize for the world. But then he never contemplates killing any of his pals, like McDermott, yeah, Dan Patton, Price. Why does that... Uh, you know, you know, Car- the Carruthers case is obvious with the whole homoerotic subtext, but there's... You know, why, why is it that he doesn't ever contemplate killing his uh, pals McDermott, Van Patten and Price. McDermott and Van Patten, at the start of the book, he does think about killing them. He thinks about gutting them with a knife when they're waiting to go into some club. Price, though, I don't think he thinks about killing. And I wonder how much of that is the submissiveness to Price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) How about another quote? He's, um... (laughs) He's got two women in his apartment, Tiffany and Tori. (laughs) Later now, I'm telling Tiffany, I'll let you go. Shh. And I'm stroking her face, which is slick, owing to tears, and mace, gently. And it burns me that she actually looks up, hopefully, for a moment before she sees the lit match I'm holding in my hand that I've torn from a matchbook I picked up at the bar at Palio's, where I was having drinks with Robert Farrell and Robert Pretcher last Friday. 
and I lower it to her eyes, which she instinctively closes, singeing both eyelashes and brows. Then I finally use a Bic lighter and hold it up to both sockets, making sure they stay open with my fingers, burning my thumb and pinky in the process, until the eyeballs burst. While she's still conscious, I roll her over, and spreading her ass cheeks, I nail a dildo that I've tied to a board deep into her rectum, using the nail gun. Then turning her over again, her body weak with fear, I cut all the flesh off around her mouth, and then using the power drill with a detachable massive head, I widen that hole while she shakes, protesting, and once I'm satisfied with the size of the hole I've created, her mouth as wide as possible, a reddish-black tunnel of twisted tongue and loosened teeth, I force my hand down, deep into her throat, until it disappears up to my wrist. All the while, her head shakes uncontrollably, but she can't bite down since the power drill ripped her teeth out of her gums, and grab at the veins lodged there like tubes and I loosen them with my fingers, and when I've gotten a good grip on them, violently yank them out through her open mouth, pulling until the neck caves in, disappears, the skin tightens and splits though there's little blood. Most of the neck's innards, including the jugular, hang out of her mouth and her whole body starts twitching like a roach on its back, shaking spasmodically, her melted eyes running down her face, mixing with the tears and mace, and then quickly, not wanting to waste time, I turn off the lights and in the dark before she dies, I rip open her stomach with my bare hands. I can't tell what I'm doing with them, but it's making wet snapping sounds and my hands are hot and covered with something. So his murders get increasingly disgusting it's still not the rat murder the rat murder is the most grotesque part of the book when he introduces the rats into the vagina yeah yeah that part is is really repulsive yeah (laughs) yeah yeah here we go i found it look it's book club from hell i'll just i'll just read out the rat bit uh (laughs) that's what we're here for That's what you get for listening to this podcast. You <laughs> deserve what you it. Deserve, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, I'm so, but a bit of context: a gigantic rat crawls out of Patrick Batman's toilet, and he traps it and starves it, and then brings a woman home. Mm. I'm trying to ease one of the hollow plastic tubes from the dismantled Haber trail system up into her vagina forcing the vaginal lips around one end of it, and even with most of it greased with olive oil, it's not fitting in properly. During this, the jukebox plays Frankie Varley singing The Worst That Could Happen, and I'm grimly lip-syncing to it while pushing the habitrail tube up into this bitch's cunt. I finally have to resort to pouring acid around the outside of the pussy so that the flesh can give way to the greased end of the habitrail, and soon enough it slides in easily. I hope this hurts you, I say. The rat hurls itself against the glass cage as I move it from the kitchen table into the living room. It refused to eat what was left of the other rat I had brought it to play with last week that now lies dead, rotting in a corner of the cage. For the last five days, I've purposely starved it. I set the glass cage down next to the girl, and maybe because of the scent of the cheese, the rat seems to go insane, first running in circles, mewling, and then trying to heave its body, weak with hunger, over the side of the cage. The rat doesn't need any prodding, and the bent coat hanger I was going to use remains untouched by my side. And with the girl still conscious, the thing moves effortlessly on newfound energy, racing up the tube until half its body disappears, and then after a minute, its rat body shaking while it feeds. All of it, dis- all of it disappears. Uh, sorry, 
all of it vanishes except for the tail, and I yank the (laughs) habitrail tube out of the girl, trapping the rodent. Soon, even the tail disappears. The noises the girl is making are, for the most part, incomprehensible. I can already tell that it's going to be a characteristically useless, senseless death, but then I'm used to the horror. It seems distilled. Even now it fails to upset or bother me. I'm not mourning, and to prove it to myself, after a minute or two of watching the rat move under her lower belly, making sure the girl is still conscious, shaking her head in pain, her eyes wide with terror and confusion, I use a chainsaw and in a matter of seconds cut the girl in two with it. The whirring teeth go through skin and muscle and sinew and bone so fast that she actually stays alive long enough to watch me pull her legs away from her body, her actual thighs, what's left of her mutilated vagina, and hold them up in front of me, spouting blood, like trophies almost. Her eyes stay open for a minute, desperate and unfocused, then close, and finally before she dies, I force a knife uselessly up her nose until it slides out of the flesh on her forehead, and then I hack the bone off her chin. She has only half a mouth left, and I fuck it once, then twice, three times in all. Not caring whether she's still breathing or not, I gouge her eyes out, finally using my fingers. The rat emerges head first. Somehow it turned itself around inside the cavity, and it's stained with purple blood. I also notice where the chainsaw took off about half of its tail. And I feed it extra brie until I feel I have to stomp it to death, which I do. Later, the girl's femur and left jawbone lie in the oven, baking, and tufts of pubic hair fill a Steuben crystal ashtray, and when I light them, they burn very quickly. <laughs> so, at least, according, by, by, uh, by me, that's the most disgusting part of the book. That part was really gross. That was, <laughs> man, imagine writing that. Imagine having to, to come up with that prose because he does he does have a talent for describing violence in such a way that is it's inescapably horrific yeah and uh, i think as i mentioned earlier like apparently he did a, a very great deal of research into like you know m- murders of the most like violent type like he, he sought out a lot of literature he, he said that it made him quite uncomfortable reading a lot of it but like you gotta say there's quite a commitment to his craft <laughs> to just come up yes, with this stuff he's a very very talented author and uses it to <laughs> to describe the most horrific uh, scenes of murder <laughs> alright well oh, look I don't think I have much more to add on the theme of American Psycho. So is there anything uh, else you want to cover before we uh, we um, call this one a day? <laughs> Not really. Like, there, there are plenty more descriptions of murder I could read out, but once you've heard a few of them, you've heard them all, like, you know, he'll cut off someone's head and microwave it and then try to cook the different bits of the body and eat them and things like that. Hmm. There's a good part where he talks about taking an Uzi to the gym, like he's got an he's got an Uzi <laughs> yeah, in, in his, his gym his bag, locker at oh, right. and he just talks about how it it symbolizes order to him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> talking about Huey Lewis in the news. There are no such mistakes made on the band's third album and flawless masterpiece, Sports Chrysalis. Every song has the potential to be a huge hit, and most of them were. It makes the band's 
makes the band rock and roll icons, gone totally is the bad boy image, and as a new frat guy sweetness takes over, they even have the chance to say ass in one song and choose to bleep it instead. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that gives the songs on the album a big big boost. boost. (laughs) (laughs) I love that for Patrick Bateman, the fact that they don't swear on the album is really good, despite the fact that he continuously swears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I was just, yeah, I, I was just thinking as you were speaking, like, Again, trying to impose some kind of justification or rationale on a book that might not be there is that, you know, so much of the dialogue um, or so much of the monologue or so much of the narrator's voice is all entirely, like, pre-scripted. The way he recites clothes um, in the manner of a fashion catalogue, the way he just gives you, you know, pre-digested... Uh, analyses of pop pop songs and things like that. Like, everything is so scripted in his life that maybe the reason that he doesn't murder people like Van Patten and Price and so forth are because they are not characters which introduce any level of uncertainty in his life. It's almost like he mm. uses violence to close off any avenue of uncertainty. He has this perfectly... He needs to maintain a perfectly scripted life and anything that might throw it off, he needs to destroy it. That's a really interesting view of it. It's, it is testament to how interesting the character of Patrick Bateman is that you can come up with all sorts of theories like this and you can find evidence for them, but there's never anything conclusive to be found in the book to really say that that is the reason why he does kill some, some people and not others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, in in closing, I would say that, um, you know, as I say, uh, Jack uh, invite, invited me or I suggested I join him for this uh, for this podcast. I haven't read Brett Easton in over a decade. Um, I used to, you know, I've read, read a few of his books and I've, I've watched the movie probably at least at least 30 times and definitely once a year for the last, uh, you know, 12 to 15 years. But actually sort of discussing this and hearing the passages that Jack read out, it really has given me an appreciation for actually how good a writer Brett Easton Ellis is. And now I actually do want to go and read, especially his follow-up book, Glamorama. But he's he's written so many books since then. I mean, like, I'm not sure how many, but I know... When I went to um, you know, a book a book signing of his uh, in 2010, uh, the book he'd released then was a sequel to his first book, Lesson Zero. Um, and I just thought I'd be interested to revisit Brett Easton now and read him as a 30-year-old as opposed to an 18-year-old. And, um, yeah, I mean, I must say this is a... Uh, yeah, I... Two weeks ago, had you asked me, is Brett Easton Ellis worth reading? I probably would have said, eh, not really. Just sort of all shock shock and awe. That's really all he's about. But, you know, the, the, the movie did a great job. The movie was really funny. But just going through this experience in the last few days, listening to a bit of the audiobook, discussing it with Jack, like, man, Brett Easton Ellis is actually a really funny satirist. And I really should read more of his stuff. So, Jack, would you be inclined to read more Brett Easton Ellis after this? 
Yeah, I definitely would. I agree with you. I read American Psycho probably when I was maybe 19 Mm. or 20 and coming back to it at the age of 30. I think just because I've met people who resemble Patrick Bateman, (laughs) I find that very, very funny. And also because I'd... Like, I'm trying to write fiction myself. And so my appreciation for, especially just how well he writes dialogue, is yeah, that's, great. That's and I want to experience more cause... of it. The best bit of this book is the dialogue. And it's worth reading. Like, I don't even know if you need to read all of it because there's not much plot. I mean, Patrick Bateman's mental state definitely declines as the book goes on. He mentions that he's now seeing a psychiatrist. He mentions that he's having... What seem to be almost psychotic symptoms, like ATMs will tell him to feed him a cat or to <laughs> feed, kill the president feed or me a straight cause cat. a terrible scene at Sotheby's or something like that. Yeah. But apart from that, there's not much momentum in the plot. You could read a quarter of it and get a taste for the fantastic dialogue and then stop if you want, continue if you want. But, mm. yeah, I, I, I want to read more, and I would recommend people read this if they, um, like, knowing that they will be reading some really vile scenes of sexual violence, which, yeah. is, which is a pretty big caveat, actually. <laughs> it's a it, huge caveat. That is a huge caveat. But um, it, um, it's interesting what you say about, um, you know, reading it at the age of 30 as opposed to 19, because by this point in your life, you've actually encountered people who are, if uh, they're not uh, identifiable with the characters, at least have a uh, family resemblance to them. Like, yeah, what, what, like, like if I go back, what I'd be interested to see now is like if I go back and read his first novel, like Lesson Zero or The Rules of Attraction, which like the characters are actually like they were actually the age at which I was then. Like in retrospect, if I go back, because I don't remember Lesson Zero being funny, I just remember it being dark and at times horrifying. But I feel like now I should go back and read it and maybe it'll just be so much funnier because of the life experience. Um, and I definitely want to read Glamorama. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'll probably get Glamorama sometime over the next few weeks. He writes so well. It's also interesting what you were saying about meeting people who bear at least a family resemblance to Patrick Bateman. It's even stranger that now, given that a lot of those sort of people have at least watched the movie and might to an extent be modelling their behaviour on Patrick Bateman, the, the world has only gotten stranger. In that yeah, respect, that, that that's the interesting thing. I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the um, film Wall Street by Oliver Stone. No, I haven't. Okay, so o- Oliver Stone, which I know you might know Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone is a horrendous Hollywood leftist, but he he's done some good good films. Um, but he did this movie in 1987 called Wall Street, which um, has uh, Charlie Sheen and. Uh, Michael Douglas playing Gordon Gecko, for which he won an Academy Award. And there's a famous quote and speech from the film called, like, greed is good. And the thing is, uh, like, yes. Oliver Stone I, I, I did this that. film uh, intending, it, in, intending it to be a critique of cowboy unregulated capitalism. But the reason the film is so popular is that people love the villain Gordon Gecko and identify with him <laughs> and model themselves on Gordon Gecko and it's the same thing with American Psycho like where the villainy is in some sense so attractive <laughs> yeah or at the very least perpetrated by someone who is in some way magnetic because 
Patrick Bateman is hilarious. He's so funny. So it's a it's a book I would recommend. I think this is a this is a an actually good book, not just good for this podcast, but an extremely well-written book that is really ripe for interpretation given how it's structured. But you do you probably need a strong stomach to read it. Yes. You have anything yes. else you want to say about That's it? That's definitely true. Well, in any event, probably recommend I recommend reading something by Brett Easton Ellis. Um, but I mean, like, American Psycho is extremely funny, but maybe I only realize how funny it is compared to the other books because I'm more familiar with it. Anyway, my uh, wife is giving me angry looks, suggesting that I should wrap up this podcast. So, Jack, it's been real. Um, do you want to <laughs> wrap this one and sign off? Yeah, I've said everything I want to say. Thanks for recording with me. It's, uh, it's, it's much easier to do these episodes with another person rather than just talking at a microphone by myself. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was uh, def- definitely fun. And um, I think what I like about it, uh, uh, at least, from, at least the, uh, my role as an interlocutor in this part, is like not being recently familiar with the text, but just sort of like thinking out loud. And it actually sort of spurs me to you know, think like, oh, I should really go and revisit something because... Like, I'm like, now, yeah, fuck, I should read Glamorama. (laughs) (laughs) So, next episode, I think, probably the next episode, going to be Sun and Steel by Yukio Mishima. As a taster of that episode, I was expecting it to be weird Japanese Bronze Age pervert. It's actually really good. I'm really enjoying it. So, uh, that's something (laughs) to look forward to. (laughs) Alright, see you next time. Okie dokie. Well, um, loved... Love to the book club from hell. Audience. (laughs) 